Good morning. It's good to be here. We are going to be looking at uh, Psalm 32. And we're going to start looking at the Maskell Psalms. Starting today, we'll work our way through uh, all of the Maskell Psalms over the next 13 Psalm Sundays. So it'll take us a year to get through that. Uh, that's where we'll be. That's all right, because, you know, second Sunday falls every month until rapture. Well, it'll still fall for other people. Uh, so there'll always be a second Sunday, and Psalms is just long enough that it'll, it will take us all the way to the rapture to finish the book of Psalms. So that's good. So we'll always have a Psalm Sunday. And uh, this is just uh, the new focus. You know, we were in 119. We worked our way through that. And so we'll put our focus into the masculine psalm. So what is a masculine psalm? I mentioned it in passing last, last month when I was giving an overview of the psalms, but uh, we'll take a little closer look at it today. So the, the word masculine itself comes from a Hebrew word that appears 13 times in your Bible. If you were to open up to Psalm 32 and you were to read the introduction to the psalm, you would see the word masculine there in English. It would say a psalm of David, masculine. And that Hebrew word that, that we get that, that uh, English masculine from appears 13 times only in the introduction to Psalms. So there's 13 um, masculine psalms. Now, they're written by various writers, and we talked about writers last month, um, but David has a number of them. The sons of Korah have a few. Asaph writes uh, a couple. Heman and uh, Ethan both write one masculine psalm themselves. Uh, a couple of the masculine psalms specifically say that they were to be performed with stringed instruments. So as we know that psalms, you know, generally we think about the psalms as a hymn book. We think about them as songs or poems. Uh, they are also uh, specifically some of these masculines to be done as a song. Now the word itself, it means uh, to instruct uh, or to teach. You have it up there. It means uh, also, that it comes from a separate Hebrew word, uh, which means to give wisdom or to give understanding. And so the idea behind the masculine psalms in particular is that they are a psalm for public instruction. Or as you see there, the word didactic, they were a teaching poem or a teaching psalm. So they're unique in the sense that, you know, some of the psalms you see are, are, are a prayer, are a lament, are uh, a cry for help. You know, you see different types of psalms. Some are just psalms of rejoicing and praise. Uh, they're, they're one man's heart being poured out directly to God uh, for various reasons. These, however, were not designed to be one man's heart towards God. These were designed to be the heart of God coming through one man to the congregation, right? So in this one, you don't see David starting off with a prayer. Uh, he starts instructing right away, right? And so, uh, you know, for our background, I chose, with Rosie's help, I, I told her I was wrestling with like finding a stock image or a, a background. This is actually the front of our building. These, these are the steps. This is Midtown. Because if you would look back into Hebrew culture, uh, you know, the, the tabernacle coming into the, the place that they would joined together way into the Old Testament and into the temple once it was built would be the place where in front of this tabernacle or in the temple, they would have a gathering space where this type of psalm would be given to all of the people. This was the, 
the the setting and so I, I put that there and it's it's much like you know i could have just as easily put you know for our, our modern setting i could have put the pews i could have got a picture of our auditorium but they're to be delivered in that fashion and so typically you know maybe you think of the amphitheaters of greece and uh, and some of these old time ways of, of gathering a crowd or just jesus and you know a bunch of people you think of the feeding of the five thousand, and you know as a kid i uh, I imagined it as a bunch of people sitting around in some grass, you know, on a hillside you know, or the Sermon on the Mount. These types of ideas where you just get this public place. Once the temple was built, you had a structure for it to come and say, OK, now, listen, here's what God has for you. And so these that is what we get out of the masculine Psalms. Psalm 132 and verse 18, it says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with my eye. And that word instruct there comes from that same uh, kind of similar related word that we get masculine from. And so this is the idea of the masculine Psalms. Colossians chapter three and verse 16, we're given a similar type of idea in the New Testament where Paul writes and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom and it should teach and admonish and, and we should teach and admonish one another in Psalms. Specifically, the masculine psalms, they should be used for teaching and admonishing and the whole, you know, all of scripture as well, we know is profitable in many ways. But the masculine psalms, the psalms should be used in teaching and, admonish and admonishing and in hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, the next slide is going to be busy. You might want to take a picture of it because it'll be too much to write down. But these are all of the masculine psalms. And these are kind of the, the key idea that those masculine psalms are communicating. I actually borrowed the, this list from Alan Shelby. Alan Shelby went through and, and, and taught this about 90 years ago. And uh, he titled them all. And as I was you know, studying for today and reading through, I read through all of those. And I thought, man, he nailed it, which, of course, it's Alan. <laughs> he nailed it. Um, so grab a picture that, and so this will just be the outline as we move forward. This is kind of where you're going. Now, this is good too, because you have this today. And so you go, you know what, when we have struggles in our life, when I have problems, when I go, how do I deal with affliction? Where would I go? Well, there's a teaching Psalm dedicated to that. You would just open your Bible yourself and start reading Psalm 88 and say, oh, well, this will teach me how to deal with affliction. Well, what about those times where, where I wander astray and, and I, and I leave God's word or, or, you know, I'm reading, but I feel like I'm just not learning anything. I'm not hearing God. Oh, well, look, Psalm 78, how to deal with leaving God's law. So these will be very practical in your life as well. You don't need me or Dell or someone else to stand up here and to teach you these, though we will. You need this because it's going gonna, it's gonna to walk you through a lot of the problems that you'll have in your life. Well, what about, what about death? Well, look, Psalm 55, this is designed to give instruction to the, to the masses, to, to, we'll say the church, but also specifically the Hebrew people on how do we deal with death? What about the natural man? I keep wrestling with the flesh. Oh, look. All right. So you get the picture. You can see what all's up there. So Psalm 32, let's go ahead and open our Bibles and I'm going to read through it just so we can put it in our mind. And before I do, uh, I'll remind you, this, this psalm is about forgiveness. That'll be the theme for today. 
And I'll tell you this up front, this psalm naturally divides into four sections. God set this one up and made it real easy to teach because he put three selahs in there. So each selah breaks it down into sections for you. And so you'll see as we read through it together here in just a moment, verses one through four will go together. At the end of verse four, you have a selah. Then you have verse five with a selah by itself. And then you have verses six and seven, and then another selah. And then you have those last verses eight through 11, which will bring the next selah. And so real quick, what is, what is selah? Well, selah is, is a praise and a pause. It is a, a musical instruction. It's something that you know, that Rosie or, the, or, or, or Maria, people who can read and understand music. You know what? When I look at sheet music, uh, I don't understand most of what's going on there. I'll just be honest. Rosie teaches the, the elders choir and the pastors and the elders. We have this choir and she brings us sheet music. And like, you know, the other day, half in jest, but not totally. One of the guys was looking at it and flips it up the other way. And he's like, I, I don't know what to do <laughs> with all this. And then they'll write instructions, but there's instructions written in. And if you're a composer, if you're uh, if you play an instrument, those instructions mean something to you. And to me, it's just it's all Latin, literally. You know, they just write like mezzo forte, and you're like, okay, what? I don't know. I don't know what that means. And, and so you do, but it does if you're, you're a composer. Now this uh, sela was for the the instructor. It tells you how to play, and it tells you here is where you take a pause. It's a suspension of the music. So we would say, you know, maybe the instrumentation would stop. The music would stop. It's a place of rest to allow praise to be accentuated. Okay. It's a place of rest to allow praise to be accentuated. And we, and we practice this sometimes upstairs. You'll see that we'll be in a song and maybe they'll just stop singing the lyrics and you'll get a little instrumental break. And sometimes you think that's just so the guitarist can show off his skills. It's not. See what that really, I mean, maybe. But really what it is, is it's a selah. It's an opportunity for you to take a moment and to, to reflect and to meditate on the things that you have been singing. And when you're singing the word of God, it gives you an opportunity to stop and to interact with the word of God. So it's a pause in the praise, but it's not a, a stop and and tune out, it's a stop and tune in more. So when you see Selah, it should cause you to stop and to say, okay, what did I just hear? Or what does that mean for me? It's also a type or a picture of the millennium or the millennial kingdom. So I'll just kind of drop that on you. You can look at that later, but a time when God will establish a kingdom on this earth and there will be a pause and there will be peace and where all of the world will get to stop and to put uh, the emphasis on hearing God and meditating on who he is and just worshiping him. So when you see Selah, that's also a type uh, of the millennial kingdom. Now, there are 74 Selahs in the Bible. 71 of them appear in Psalms, and that's to be expected because it's a songbook. That leaves three that are outside of the book of Psalms, and all three of those appear in the book of Habakkuk. So apparently he had some musical abilities too that we didn't know about. He's throwing in some, some Selahs, and he's causing you to stop and to pause and, and, and to set a focus for the Jewish people on this millennial kingdom as well. So there's, there's that. All right, let's read it. Psalm 32. I'm going to read out loud. I want you guys to just follow along with me. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, 
and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, surely in the floods of great waters, and they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto me. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall come pass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Let's pray. Lord God, lead us in your word as we consider forgiveness. God, there's, this is one of the, you know, one of those key concepts in the Bible. Without forgiveness, we all are without hope. Without your forgiveness, God, we all remain sinners. Without your forgiveness, we, we, we cannot work, we cannot earn, we can do nothing to, to impress, please you, or, or to, to gain our own salvation. God, lead us to be a people who, who seek your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this, this chapter, it, it opens up with, um, in those first couple verses, talking about some blessings. Uh, in verses one and two, uh, David is going to lay out uh, a couple ways to get blessed, and then he's going to come right back and, and kind of jump on these, these terms again. I want to take just a minute to talk about a couple words. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, transgression, whose sin is covered, that word sin, then blessed is the man in whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. There's another interesting word in whose spirit is no guile. So you have these words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. And on the, on the surface, we might read through them in other places and think, ah, oh, that's all the same thing, right? Uh, but here and in a number of places throughout scripture, you're going to get them mentioned together uh, and you're going to get them maybe stacked against each other uh, or you'll have different verses that will say, uh, talk about forgiveness of, of all of those things. Uh, for example, in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquity of the children of Israel and their transgression in all their sin. Putting all of that on the live goat and he'll send him away. And it's talking about the sacrifices for Israel and how um, part of the sacrifice, the scapegoat, was to cover the, the transgression, the sin, and the iniquity. Uh, in in uh, Nehemiah 4, 5, Nehemiah makes a prayer against his enemies, and he says, cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have uh, provoked thee to anger. Uh, and so he talks about these as being a little different. I just want to give you a quick insight into those three words, all right? Uh, I was going to make you a chart, and then I decided I wasn't even going to cover this. And then I decided about 20 minutes ago I was going to drop it on you. Iniquity occurs 278 times in the Bible, uh, the Hebrew in the Hebrew form, or in, in the English form. The Hebrew word that we get right here 
appears 230 times in the Bible. And in 220 of those, it's translated as iniquity. It means perversity, depravity, or guilt. So it's a, iniquity is a perversion that comes uh, generally from within, but also from within uh, the, the world. It is also going to be the spirit of the world. As we'll see in the New Testament, we have the mystery of iniquity, which doth already work. So it's the spirit of Antichrist that is already at work in this world, but it's also pervasive in us. And we're warned against it, even as believers, to watch out for the spirit of this world and that seeps into us and leads us into perversity and depravity. Now, the Old Testament, the first mention is in Genesis uh, 15, 16, but in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So iniquity is something that is growing and can be filled up. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse five, uh, we're told that iniquity passes on generationally. So iniquity continues. He says, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am jealous visiting the iniquity of the fathers under the children of the third and fourth generation. So iniquity is something that we can pick up. Iniquity is something that we pass on. We have a natural bent within us to be like our fathers, to be like our parents, to struggle where our fathers struggled because iniquity uh, generationally can get passed on uh, as well. Exodus 28, 43 tells us that iniquity kills. Iniquity kills. Romans chapter 6 and 19, uh, even uh, where we're told, even so now yield your members servants unto righteousness. We're also told, yield not your members to iniquity unto iniquity. Which means this, that you can yield or not yield. You get to choose whether or not you will yield unto iniquity. So iniquity does not have to have control over you. And that's part of what we're going to see out of this uh, chapter as well. So that's iniquity. I think the key and short for iniquity is that iniquity comes from the spirit of Antichrist, the mystery of iniquity, which works in this world and works in us. Transgression is, is also translated, or it could be defined as rebellion, revolt, or trespass. So this is direct defiance to something that we have been told. That is transgression. It's, uh, the Hebrew word that's used here in the psalm, is, it appears 93 times. 84 of those, it's, it comes across as transgression. A few as trespass, once as rebellion. So it gives you a good insight into what transgression is. Transgression is rebellion. And then three times it's also um, translated as sin. So the first mention of that Hebrew word, we actually just saw a couple of weeks ago with Pastor Sam, Genesis 31, 36. And Jacob was wroth and showed with Laban. And Jacob answered and said unto Laban, what is my trespass? What is my transgression? How have I broken the law? How have I broken our agreement? How have I gone contrary or rebelled to what we have done? And, and Sam walked us through that uh, just recently. So that is a, a transgression. And then you have the word sin and sin. So both of those, iniquity and transgression, would, would be categorized as sin. Sin would be a bigger, a broader term. A lot of things would fall under sin, and sin is defined for us in the Bible in a few ways as transgression, when he says specifically that when you break the law of God, that is sin. Well, that is also rebellion, so that is transgression. Uh, anything that is against God's, God's holy nature, anything that, uh, that is not done uh, you know, uh, in, according to righteousness, so that's iniquity as well, against the, that spirit that is working um, in this world. Uh, so those things would be defined as sin. So sin's a kind of that bigger, broader term. All right. 
So I just wanted to drop that on you real fast. So here's the blessing. The blessing, the blessing of forgiveness is what we need to see. I think I got a screen, a slide for this. Can you read that? It's light, that light blue. Can you read that? Deb, can you read that? That's okay. Luke, can you read that? Luke's got good eyes. That's bad color choice on my part. I'll fix that for next time. So the blessings of uh, forgiveness is this. Number one, blessing comes to those who are forgiven. Is the very first thing they tell us. Blessed is the man that's forgiven. Now, forgiveness itself is a blessing. But being forgiven also brings other blessing along with it. So the very first and foundational blessing that any of us can receive is the blessing of forgiveness, is the blessing of, of knowing that, that I am a sinner and that only God can set me free from that. Now, blessing comes to those whose sin is covered, uh, is, what, is what the psalmist is instructing us. And specifically what that means is not to those who cover their sin. Because the desire of man naturally is always to cover our own sin. Naturally in the flesh, we do not want to confess our sin. We do not want to let people know of our weaknesses, our rebellions, our iniquities, the things that we are doing wrong. In fact, we don't even want to confess it to the Lord. If we're going to be honest, even as Christians in the flesh, it's hard to confess. And we know when we're wrong. We know when we're rebellious. We know when we're sinning. And we know what we need to do. But a lot of times that's a struggle. And so we just want to hide it. We just think that somehow time passing magically fixes it. Ah, it's just water under the bridge. Now, to a God who's outside of time, you think he just was like, oh, it's been nine days. I forgot about that. I might forget to deal with my kids, but he won't. Psalm 85 and verse 2. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Selah. See, because it's only God that can cover sin. And man tries. We try with self-righteousness. We try with works. We try with uh, silence. We just try not saying things. We try all of these ways to cover our sin. But it's only God who covers sin because it's only God who judges sin. Since he is the one who can judge sin, he's also the one who can forgive and actually cover that up. I mentioned Nehemiah 4 or 5 a minute ago, where Nehemiah is praying that his enemy's sin would not be covered. That they, their sin would be well known. Isaiah chapter 43, 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgression for my own sake and will not remember thy sin. He, he covers, he blots out, he deals with transgression. Now in Romans chapter 6, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 4, Paul quotes this. So in Romans chapter 4, as, as Paul is laying out for the New Testament church, um, and I didn't even put it in my notes. We need to read it. Let me, let me get to Romans chapter 4. I got to use my Bible. Paul quotes David in verse uh, 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. So Paul says that David recognized that, that grace by faith is better than what they had in the Old Testament of, 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 of grace by works, right? This is the man who's truly blessed. You and I have a blessing that was even greater than the blessing of David. 
saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Well, that's you and me who know Christ as our Savior. And so this is the first place that, that we, uh, the first instruction is this, is a blessing comes to those who are forgiven. Forgiveness itself is a blessing, but that's the only way to get further blessing. You won't have any more blessing in your life until you deal with the blessing of forgiveness. Number two, blessing comes to those who have God on their side, which is salvation. But again, this is that, it's kind of that same thought. When, when I have unrepentant, undealt with sin, God is my father, but it sets him against me, against the sin that I'm harboring. Now that father-son relationship never changes, never breaks, but my fellowship to him does. And so we need to make sure that we keep God on our side because that's an enemy you don't want to have. Though God tells us that his own people often become his enemy through the wickedness of their heart and through unconfessed sin. So blessing, blessing comes to the honest in heart is what David is instructing us as well here in the psalm. So don't deceive yourself because we deceive ourselves in, into thinking that, you know, that we can get away with it. But, but Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13 this is a very important one. He that covereth their sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So confession is required not only to get mercy, but to prosper. So the blessing comes to those who are honest with themselves and recognize it, that I have got to confess and to deal with my sin. So sin that is undealt with will put me in a position where I won't get blessing and I won't be able to prosper. And you may look around and go, ah, oh, but I got a good job. And, you know, I mean, things are going good in my life. Well, you're short-sighted. Because the prosperity that we're talking about is prosperity that lasts beyond this life. It's eternal. So that's, this is what, what uh, David is laying out for us in, in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 3 and verse 4, he, he begins to talk about the burden of conviction. So he talks about the blessing that comes with, um, with forgiveness. But then he talks about the burden of conviction. And these verses are a little weird when you first read them. It says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. And you're like, what on earth does that mean? And what it means is this. Silence hurts because it prevents forgiveness. We actually have to communicate. And this is what we do. We think, well, God knows my heart. Like God knows I sinned. And God knows I don't want to, you know, so he'll just forgive it. But what God says is that you actually need to open your mouth and speak to him and ask him, and, and, it, and this is the burden of conviction. If you are a believer or if you are, even if you're not a believer, the spirit of God works. And, and when we do things that are wrong and you see this in kids, even kids who, who don't know Christ as their savior, they, they wrestle with right and wrong. And we do too. When we do things that are wrong and the spirit starts to convict us, that hurts. If you have the spirit of God in you and you have not quenched it so much that you've refused to listen, conviction is painful. Conviction is hard. And this is what David is saying. We try to keep quiet. It's like, ah, in our pride, we're like, ah, it'll be fine. But we know because God just keeps crushing us. It, 
and, and, and inside the spirit is roaring and says, let's just get this right. Let's just deal with this. And on the outside, we're in our pride. We're like, no, nah, just tough it out, wait it out. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. This is the conviction of the Lord, verse four. And my moisture is turned into drought of summer, Selah. And he's got to take a break right here and say, man, this conviction thing is breaking me. Being right with God requires us to open our mouth. Hosea 7, 14 talks about that. Isaiah 59, 11 talks about that. It's like when you were a kid and you knew discipline was coming. Do you ever have that kind of dad or that kind of mom? Do you have that mom that said, you just wait till your dad gets home? Rosie had that. Rosie's mom would be like, you just wait till your dad. I had that. Anyone else have that mom? You'd be like, you boy, okay. You're a big boy when mama's here, but you wait till dad gets home. You won't be a big boy then. Then the rest of the day, you know how you walked around. You're like, it's 3.30. You're like, oh, it's getting closer. It's 4.30. You're like, oh, dad's going to come home. The afternoon is not fun. Five o'clock and you're like, oh, man, you're, you're, you're dreading that idea that dad's coming home. Why? So dealing with conviction and you know what's coming. This is that same idea that he's laying out. And he's saying, man, just deal with it. You will mess up. This is the public instruction here. You will mess up. Okay? Public service announcement. You will still sin. You will still fall. You will still mess up. The best thing that you can do is to deal with that as soon as you, you realize it. And then, and then another thing to take out of this is, uh, is this idea that physical health can be impacted by our spiritual states. Failure to confess can impact our physical health. And you see it as he, he ties his, his conviction to his physical bodies. He starts to talk about his health being gone. His bones are, are, are waxing old. And, and, you know, of course, we see the interaction between the spiritual and the physical all the time in the New Testament with, with demon possessions and spirits impacting people and changing their physical health. We see it in Job, Job's physical health being impacted by spiritual beings. But the same thing is true. And even science is it's coming to the place where we, we strongly support everything that God told us in Psalms thousands of years ago. Your stress will change the way your body functions. Continual anguish shortens your lifespan. Ha! Huh, amazing. Confess. Deal with it. Don't hold it. All right. So God knew what he was doing. Science is catching up. And so this was the cry of David, and this is the stress of, of conviction. This is the stress of having a conscience. This is good. It's a good stress to have, but when you have it, you want to deal with it as, as quickly as possible. Jesus made a similar cry in Matthew 27, 46 on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou uh, forsaken me? Uh, which you see also in Psalm 22, 1, which Jesus was quoting, which says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? from the words of my roaring. And in this, in this instance, Jesus, you know, had to take on sin. He wasn't getting forgiveness. He was taking sin. And his point was, man, this is not fun. This hurts. More than the, the pain of a physical cross, Jesus is crying out and saying, being separated from the Father is what hurts the most. And then, then there's that Selah. So you, you work through that and you get that instruction. It's like, got to take a break because that's hard and heavy. Then you get verse five. 
And verse five gives us the steps to forgiveness. You had transgression, sin, and iniquity in verses one and two, and you get them to come back right up here. I acknowledged my sin, first step. Number one, if we want forgiveness, it starts with acknowledging. That number one is internal. Uh, you know, and when you go to, um, you know, like AA, for example, uh, or any type of, you know, addiction recovery, they always say, what's the first step? Admit it, recognize it. Come, come to a, a, an honest uh, position in your own heart and say, I'm an addict. I, strug what, I struggle with gambling. I struggle with alcohol. Whatever your addiction is, you can't get recovery until you're honest. And so this is where, where all forgiveness starts. It starts internally by acknowledging. It has to be an honest evaluation directed towards me, but then it needs to be an honest evaluation that I can then take to the Lord. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And then he says... Uh, acknowledge my sin unto thee and ha, uh, and mine iniquities have I not hid. And this is the second step. The second step is that we don't hide. So we can acknowledge internally. We can come to a place within us where we recognize what we need to deal with. But then we also have to come to a place where we seek honest accountability. Now getting good, getting forgiven, it's between you and the Lord. You know, sometimes it's between you and people as well. Sometimes my sin breaks relationships with others, and I have to deal with that. But this is important, and this is really hard. Getting forgiveness and then, you know, trying to stay in a place where we're walking with the Lord and we don't have to continually seek forgiveness. Uh, and again, you go, to, you go to AA, and they're going to tell you the same thing. Uh, you get a good counselor, they're going to tell you the same thing. Get some accountability. Get some people in your life to help you out with this. Change your playgrounds and change your playmates. Uh, I think that's how they say it, right? You can't go back to where you were. You can't go back to the people you were around. So I have to decide to not hide. Now that's tough because I got to bring it out into the light. I got to one, bring it into light before God, before the one who is light. But a lot of times I got to bring that out into light before my brothers or sisters. I got to find someone to hold me accountable. And that's a tough part of living a life that stays right in the eyes of the Lord. Then finally, uh, he says that he confesses. And, and that's the, 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 the verbal part, the vocal part. It's directed towards God. Either from the heart or from the lips, there has to be a communication. Of course, with God, we can talk with him from our hearts. With man, we can't. You know, when, when we need forgiveness, and this applies too in our personal interpersonal relationships. When you, when you mess up with uh, your coworker, with your spouse, with your kids, you know what you need to do? You need to get honest. And you need to talk to them. You have to confess. I do this a lot. I'm like, all right, kids, I messed that one up. Like, well, don't, won't that lead your kids to not trust you? No. It leads them to trust me more. It leads them to know that one, I'm, I'm a human just like them. And the things that they wrestle with, they can bring to me. I want them to know that. And it leads them to know that that I don't have it all figured out and I mess up, but when I do, I'm going to work to make it right. And I want to model that for them. And so they start to trust me more and they, and they're, and they makes them more open with their own failures as well. I sometimes I guess not very often, but sometimes I got to say that to my wife. Oops. I messed this one up. So we got to confess. And then we have Selah. It's like that one verse was enough. 
and it's like, all right, we need to take a rest. Because that, that confession piece is hard. When you actually acknowledge and don't hide and confess, you're like, okay, now let's rest and meditate in that for a bit. Then you get to verses six and seven, and, and God becomes our hiding place. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in the time when thou mayest uh, be found. See, and this, is, this, is, this naturally comes to those who, who are children of God because the Spirit of God is always seeking communion with God. And when the Spirit of God is in us, He's always seeking right communion with the Lord. And when anything is breaking that communion, the Spirit wants it back. And the Spirit works that in us. And so the godly, you got to stay tuned into the work of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit in your life. And when you hear it, the godly... Even though confession is hard, they want it because they know that what comes after that is worth it. And so the godly seek after this. This is what they pray for. I mean, sometimes I'm praying, God, just show me where I messed up. I mean, if there's something in me that I don't even recognize, God, bring it to my attention so I can fix it. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble, and thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And then God becomes our, our hiding place and our fortress, and, uh, and he begins to protect us himself. First, uh, we've got to move into the last section because we're running, we're running shorter on time. But God wants us to hide ourselves in him. Ooh, and I'm going to give you a really obvious statement here real quick. How do I know I'm right with God? By getting right with God. Well, that's circular. I know. Sometimes that's what you do. You just got to stop and evaluate and, and say, I need to get right with the Lord. And I don't even know what to get right. God, lead me so I can get right. Okay. All right. And then you get the last section of it. Now, after the Selah, there's a change. And the change is it, it's, it's I will. It's God starts to speak. And, and really the way this, this chapter breaks down is this last section, 8 through 11, is God's commentary on what David gave us in the beginning. When you read through it, you just see, you know, the same thing replayed. I will instruct thee. He starts telling you what the blessings are that, that David was talking about in the beginning of the chapter. And God gives you those. I will instruct thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Uh, be ye not as a horse. So he gives us a couple different I wills. Just toss them up there. We're going to go a little quicker. I'll instruct thee. I will teach thee. I will guide thee. Those are the blessings. You want God doing that in your life, right? Be not as the horse or the mule, which have no understanding. Uh, and then he, he wraps it up with that there will be sorrow unto the wicked, but be glad in the Lord and rejoice. All right. We're getting loud upstairs. So we're going we're gonna to wrap up here too. And so you can take this chapter and look at that last part. Look at how God comments on his own, on his own word uh, and, and confirms what David was teaching us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. For you made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. We're going to close with Rosie singing. Uh, she took Psalm 32 and turned it into a song. Because these are songs or psalms for public instruction. And as she sings, your job is to meditate on the instruction. 
on the words that God gave us there, on the things that we talked about today. If you need forgiveness, then you need to talk to somebody uh, around us. Some of you need to talk to somebody to get forgiveness from them. Some of you need help knowing how to get forgiveness from the Lord. Some of you just need to bow your head and take a few minutes and give some things to the Lord. But let's deal with forgiveness. And when Rosie's done singing, you are dismissed.